But listen as I read. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony about him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter, uh, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, the last novel that was ever published by C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century intellectual C.S. Lewis, is a little novel called Till We Have Faces. And, and in that book, that 1956 book, he retells the, the classic Greek mythological story of Cupid and Psyche. The story of that really isn't all that important, but one of the things that Lewis does as he retells this story is he inserts this narrator called Orwal, and Orwal is Psyche's older sister. And she's a somewhat bitter woman who's very upset at the circumstances of her life and what she's had to live through and feels as if she's been wronged, wronged by life, wronged by the gods. And so throughout her lifetime, she sort of carefully has been building her case against the gods, and she demands to be heard by them for the sake of justice. And finally, she's given her chance. She's given her chance to, to prosecute the gods, and so she meticulously describes all the things, all, every instance where she's been, been wrong. But when she's done, when she's finished, after she's had her chance to formally state her case before the gods themselves, a messenger comes to tell her that it, now it's her turn to face the judges. And she says, my judges? And they say, well, why, why, yes, child, the gods have been accused by you. Now it's your turn. Now, Peter doesn't go to the trial of Jesus because he wants to be one of the accusers. He goes because most likely he has at least somewhat of a sincere desire to keep the promise that he had made that he would never abandon Jesus. And yet what he finds in fairly short order is that the trial of Jesus isn't the only trial that's going to be occurring that night. Right? Because Peter is going to be put to the test 
as well. He's going to stand before his own accusers. It's a fascinating contrast that Mark wants us to, to see. We have two scenes here, two scenes that are happening simultaneously. We have Jesus being taken to the home of the high priest where he's ushered into this upper room to face the leaders of the Jewish religious establishment. He's upstairs. Now, meanwhile, Peter, it says, is below in the courtyard facing his own accusers. He's downstairs. So upstairs and downstairs. Let's look at that. What happens upstairs, what happens downstairs, and what connects the two? First, what happens upstairs? Let's look at this. Jesus was taken to the residence of the high priest, it says. In verse 53, all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law were there. Now, this all needn't mean that every, every person, all 70 members of the, of the Sanhedrin, as, it, as it's referred to here, that, that every single of the 70 members were there, but, a bit, but, it, but it was referring to the fact that, that all the different factions were there. Everybody that would have been there for the necessary quorum to have a formal trial. You had, the, you had the priests, you had the elders, you had the teachers of the law. So everyone was there. And the first thing that you need to do, of course, in a proper trial is present the, examine the evidence, present the evidence. And it says in verse 55 that that's what they were doing. They were looking for evidence to prove that Jesus was guilty of a capital offense. They wanted Jesus dead. Mark says they didn't actually find any, any evidence, but of course, I mean, and we do this today, why let facts get in the way of a good argument, right? They proceed. And so they, and so they, they get some witness together. They bring some witnesses. Now, capital cases, according to the law of Moses, require the testimony of at least two witnesses to agree. For example, in Deuteronomy 17, that's what it says. You need two or three witnesses in order to convict in a capital case, right? But the testimony of the witnesses has to agree or else the, 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 the evidence has to be excluded. And that's what happens here. It says in verse 56, the testimony doesn't agree. It doesn't say exactly what the testimony was, only that it, didn't, it conflicted with each other when the, when the witnesses came. So they start grasping at straws. Look at verses 57 and 58. People stand up and say, they, they try a different angle. Okay, we heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days build another not made by man. And okay, now this is, this is actually a pretty serious charge. Even outside of the Hebrew context, the desecration of of sacred spaces in the Greco-Roman world was a, was a serious thing, and it was, it was a capital offense, not just among the, the Jews, but elsewhere as well. And since they would have needed the ultimate sign-off from the Roman governor in order to, to execute Jesus, this was actually something. This was a charge. If they could get it to stick, th this would have been a very serious charge. They would get sympathy from the Romans. But they got it completely wrong, of course. Now, we know, we know where they get it, Way back at the beginning of his ministry, John tells us, the Apostle John tells us in his gospel in John chapter 2, the first time that Jesus goes into the temple to clear the money changers out of the temple courts, he's challenged by people who are there to give a miraculous sign that he has the authority to do what he's doing. And so Jesus says, okay, you want a sign? He tells the people, he said, try this one. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. That's what he says. But of course, he's not, he's not talking about the temple building. He's talking about his body. John even tells us that. Right? But they, comple they completely misunderstood it at the time, and they completely misunderstand what, he's, what he was saying now. But it's more than that, right? because Mark rightly notes that this is false testimony. They're lying. Because even if Jesus had been talking about, way back in John chapter 2, even if Jesus had been talking about the physical temple being destroyed, he never said in John chapter 2 that he was going to destroy it. They were totally twisting, twisting his words. But even then, even in their twisting, even in, this, in, this, in this, this lie, this mischaracterization of what Jesus said, even then it says, right, verse 59, their testimony didn't agree. 
So by all rights, it too should have been invalidated under, under Jewish law. And I think it's likely then that Caiaphas, the high priest, senses that the case against Jesus here that he's trying to make, it's not really hanging together. So he steps into the fray to sort of prosecute things himself. And he starts asking Jesus questions. And he gets nowhere, and really he's really not getting anywhere, until he asks Jesus the pointed question at the end of verse 61, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, actually, that's a very good question. In fact, that is, that is the question. Right? That's why Jesus was, was there. See, they had heard Jesus, they had heard about all the teaching that Jesus had been doing, all of his claims, all of his miracles. And there were, and they, and there were these people that were running all over the countryside, right, exclaiming about what Jesus had done, telling other people that they were following Jesus and that, that other people should be following him too. And so it's at least with some integrity, because it was, after all, the Sanhedrin's job. Jesus was in the right place. It was the Sanhedrin's job to interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to determine who the Messiah was. They were the ones who would represent the people and examine whether someone who was claiming to be the Messiah actually fit the qualifications. He was, in the, he was actually, from, from that point of view, in the right place, and he was being asked, from that point of view, the right question. Now, incidentally, that's that's still the right question to answer about Jesus. I mean, if you're investigating Christianity, you start with, you start with Jesus because he makes some incredible claims about himself. Right? He said he was God. He said people should worship him. He said that if you wanted to live, you needed to follow him and only him. And, for example, his claim about the temple, I mean, it was actually much bigger than they were giving him credit for. He said that he had the power upon his own death after he was killed to raise himself from the dead. Huge claims. So either he's an egomaniac, well, maybe he's a lying egomaniac or he's a delusional egomaniac, but it doesn't really matter. Either he's, he's an egomaniac or he's actually God. Now, if he's an egomaniac, of course, you can just ignore him. Sanhedrin would have every right to just dismiss his claims. He's lying. He's not worth following because he can't deliver on the promises that he's making. But if he's right, then following him becomes an absolute necessity. So that's the question that's being asked of Jesus in this formal, legal proceeding of the Jewish high court. Right? And Jesus answers, when very, when very simply asked the question, Jesus answers very simply, yes, I am. But then he adds this sort of combined quote, this quote that combines Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, 13, and he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming down on the clouds of heaven. Now, what Jesus is saying there is like what he, like, it's kind of like what was said to Orwal in the, in the Greek myth. Right? You've been accusing me. You've been making me answer to you. But there will be a day when I will come back and the trial will be reversed and you will answer to me. But, of course, Caiaphas doesn't care. The Sanhedrin doesn't care. They're not really interested in the truth of Jesus' answer. They already have in mind what they want, and now they have it. Right, they've got what they need. Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah, and he's done it in front of all these witnesses. Don't need to bring witnesses from the outside now. The crime has been committed. It's been committed right here, and you've all seen it. And so they have what they need, and they condemn him to death. That's what happens upstairs. Now, let's go downstairs. Look at what happens downstairs. This is where it's helpful to have your Bibles open again, because you can see how verse 66 really picks up the narrative strand that started at the beginning of what I read, verse 53. 54, Peter followed at a distance, it says, at the very beginning, right into the courtyard of the high priest, 
And he was hanging out with the guards. He was hanging out with the people who were there, kind of gathered to see what all the commotion was about. Then, then Mark tells us about what happens upstairs, and then he picks up the thread again in verse 66. But actually, to make sense of what happens downstairs, you have to go back even a little bit farther in Mark chapter 14. Right? Go back to, to, to Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Now, I didn't read this this morning, but, but this happens earlier, and this is what it's picking up on. So this is, this is before Jesus' arrest, on, on the night that he was betrayed. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, verse 27, He will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, that exchange is really important because it sets the expectation then for what happens downstairs now. And what happens downstairs is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Three times, Peter is, is put to the test. He's asked to identify himself with Jesus. He's asked, are you with, are you with him? And three times he fails. It's his trial. And three times he fails. Now, the first two times, sort of, sort of in standard kind of you know, bland language, the last time, he's actually calling down curses. Curses on himself, probably also curses on those, on those around him. How dare you? becomes a much more emphatic kind of sense of a denial, right? So, so you're no longer, by the end, able to give Peter any benefit of the doubt. Like, he's, it's, it's a very uncomfortable scene. And as soon as it happens, as soon as the third denial happens, the rooster crows the second time. And those words from that Jesus was saying in verses 27 to 31, those words come crashing down on Peter, right? He said he wouldn't do it. He did it. Ah. That's what happens downstairs. What happens upstairs? Jesus is condemned, falsely accused and condemned. What happens downstairs? Peter is actually, the charges against him were actually true. You're with that guy, right? But he denies it. He lies. Jesus tells the truth upstairs and is condemned. Peter lies downstairs, and he gets to go free, right? But, it, I mean, that's ironic, right? I mean, that's an interesting contrast, but it's much more than that. It's much more than just sort of this sort of ironic contrast. It's very intentional. Right? So we did what happens upstairs. We did what happens downstairs. Now we have to see what connects the two because this is what's absolutely critical for us to see. It's not just a coincidence that these two things are happening at the exact same time. It's not just a coincidence that Mark happens to, to group them together. They're critically linked to show the contrast between Jesus and Peter. And in a very real sense then to show the contrast between Jesus and us. And they're very, very, absolutely, completely dependent upon each other. This is what I mean. Jesus is condemned even though he's innocent, right? And Peter gets off even though he's guilty. Both of them happen. But what I want you to see is that the one fact is completely dependent on, it's incomplete without the other, right? This is what I mean. If you have the condemnation of Jesus, if that's the only story I told, if all we talked about this morning was the upstairs, only the upstairs story, then you'd be tempted to kind of view it as an incredible tragedy, of course, but that's all you would have a miscarriage of justice, and maybe conclude a meaningless death, right? You'd look at what happened upstairs and you'd say, that's so unfair, what they did to Jesus. I mean, it wasn't a fair trial. He was innocent, right? Poor Jesus. Right? But on the other hand, if you just took what happened downstairs, if that's all we talked about, right? If we just looked at what happened to Peter, you'd have the denial of Peter, then you'd have 
this incredible tragedy, but once again, that's all you'd have. A pitiful disciple, a, a failure of willpower, right? weeping, despair, all that. And you'd look at what happened downstairs and you'd say, that's so sad what Peter did. I mean, he said he was going to be strong for Jesus, but he, but he wasn't. Poor Peter. Right? See, in both cases, in both cases, if you only have the one without the other, you end in tragedy. You end in hopelessness. You, have, you either have a meaningless martyr upstairs or you have a pitiful follower downstairs. But when you put the two together, you see what's actually happening. See, when you, when you put the two together, you see that Jesus' condemnation is not just the result of a miscarriage of justice. It is, of course, a miscarriage of justice, but it's, but it's more. You put the condemnation of Jesus together with the denial of Peter, and it's not just a meaningless death that Jesus is, is being led to here. Right? When you put the condemnation of Jesus together with the denial of Peter, you see Jesus' condemnation for what it really is. It's not, just, it's not a meaningless death. It's an intentional substitution. Right? Now, on the other hand, on the flip side, you see the same thing. Right? You see the same thing. Peter's denial is not just a personal failure. Now, it is, of course, a personal failure, but it's more. You put that personal failure with the substitutionary condemnation of Jesus, and you see Peter's denial for what it really is, a reminder of the grace and the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. Right? And it's here, it's in this, that we should see ourselves. Because we're downstairs with Peter. Now, how? In what sense, you say? How, I mean, do you mean, you mean we're downstairs with Peter because we deny Jesus too? Is that what you mean? Well, yes. I mean, yes. In a sense, that's, that's very true. That's what, that's what sin is. We all deny Jesus. We all, we all say something else at some level is more important than him, and we choose that instead of him. So, yes, in a sense, that, but it's more than that. Right? We need to see ourselves downstairs with Peter because we go free even though we're guilty because we are the beneficiaries of Jesus' substitution, right? You, you know the rest of the story with Peter, right? I mean, we'll see it unfold over the next couple of weeks. Jesus, of course, is ultimately killed. It happens just like he told his disciples it would, right? Remember what, what he said back in Mark 14, 27? You'll all fall away. It's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, jump ahead to Mark 16, verse 7. Okay? Now, I know we're, get, we're getting into Easter here, but, but just this one thing. Mark 16, verse 7. The angel meets the women at the empty tomb, and the angel tells the women, don't be alarmed. This is Mark 16, verse 6. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, verse 7, listen. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. All right Now, don't miss this. The angel specifically singles out Peter to make sure that they tell him to meet Jesus in Galilee just like Jesus had told Peter it was going to happen. Now, what do you think Peter would have heard? What do you think would, would, have, would have gone? The angel would have come and said, hey, Peter, right? Jesus is alive. <laughs> and, he, he's, and he's excited to see you. He wants to meet you. And Peter's response would have been, wait a minute, I, re I remember that conversation. I remember that conversation with Jesus. That's when, he told, that's when I told him I would never deny him. I told him I would die for him, but I didn't. I failed. And he wants to see me? He knows what I've done? 
and he wants to see me anyway? There, were, there was a news story a couple years ago about a high school basketball team in Gainesville, Texas, the Gainesville Tornadoes. Now, it's an interesting story because the interesting thing about this team is that whenever they played, no one ever came to see them. They had no fans. And that's because the high school was a juvenile correctional facility, and there was a correctional facility for felony attenders. So one of the perks, one of the very few perks they had was this basketball team. And a couple times a year, they got to leave the prison to be able to play other high schools. But the thing was, is no one would ever sit in their bleachers to cheer them on. I mean, their fellow students, of course, weren't allowed to leave the prison. The parents and family, had, they didn't really care. They, they didn't come. And the rest of society, of course, had just written them off. I mean, after all, look at what they've done. Right? No one came to see their play, them play until two students, two players on the team from the Vanguard College Prep School in Waco, Texas, had an idea. Before one of the games, one of the games that they were going to be hosting at Vanguard, they, unbeknownst to the Gainesville players and the Gainesville team, they organized their, their, their school, their student body, their families and friends, the, the teachers, they organized them to create the entire section, the whole section of the, of the bleachers that would be devoted to, to, to cheering for Gainesville. They had cheerleaders. They all dressed in the school colors for, for Gainesville. Gainesville had no idea. So they come out of the locker room, and the, and the, and the gym just erupts in applause. And, and it continues throughout the, the entire game. They're cheering every basket, every block shot, every, every rebound, everything. For the first time, maybe ever, these teenagers, these guilty teenagers, experienced what it was like to have someone on their side someone who wanted to see them despite what they had done. And one of the Vanguard players summed it up absolutely perfectly. He said, this is what we did. He said, we all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. Now, that's the experience of Peter. Would you consider for a moment how remarkable it is that we're reading what we're reading about Peter? Right? Most, most scholars believe that Mark was the, was the first account that was ever written down of, of Jesus' life the first one that, that was written down, before Matthew, before Luke, before John. And, and most believe that Mark is actually writing down the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Right? There's virtually, virtually nothing that happens in Mark's gospel where Peter wouldn't have been present. Peter was the source. Mark was the scribe. Now think about this. Would you have cut him a little bit of slack? I mean, just a little bit of slack. If he had just left this incident out, I mean, just left the detail out. Or, or maybe just kind of skirted it over. I mean, this is pretty embarrassing. This is deeply personal. He'd been forgiven. It's over. Why bring it up again? But Peter doesn't. He doesn't leave it out. In fact, he pulls no punches. <laughs> I mean, it comes up over and over again. How could that be? What would make someone able to share with humility his deepest failings, to share his downstairs with the rest of the world throughout the rest of history? Only one thing. Only an encounter with the condemned and the resurrected Jesus, only an encounter with the Jesus upstairs, do you have any kind of, any kind of strength, any, any kind of combination of, of humility and boldness that would allow you to share these kinds of details? Now, I understand no one wants to plunge too deeply into their downstairs, but would you consider this truth for a second for yourselves? Right? That your downstairs moments, your failings to keep your promises to Jesus, Peter looked Jesus right in the eye, talk about accountability, and said, I will never do this, and then he failed. Ever done something like that? Right? Ever looked Jesus right in the eye? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll never do it. I'll never do it again. Right? We, we, 
consider that in the midst of those downstairs moments, your failings to keep your promises to Jesus are not just a reminder of your sinfulness, though they are, but they are a reminder that while you're downstairs, Jesus is upstairs taking your condemnation. Right? So when you promise to your kids that you'll never lose your temper again, and then you do, and you promise that you'll never look at pornography, and then you do, and you promise that you won't binge and purge, cut yourself, forget to pray, mistreat your neighbor, yell at the idiot driver on the highway, and then you do, then you're guilty. Right? You shouldn't have done it. Don't misunderstand me. Wrong is wrong. Sin is sin, and sin is destructive. But our hope, as we all seek to change and to become more like Christ and grow in the context of community together into holiness, our hope is not in our ability to stand before the court of God and present ourselves as righteous. Our hope is, the one, is in the one who was innocent but who was condemned as guilty on our behalf so that when God looks at us, he knows what we've done and he loves us anyway. Unlike the gods of Greek mythology that Lewis was writing about until we have faces, the God that we serve is just, absolutely just, and we are accountable to his justice. But because Jesus was condemned for us upstairs, the justice has been satisfied. We go free not as a miscarriage of justice, but in fulfillment of the justice that was laid down, that was handed down to him on our behalf, and we go free and we go free changed. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are um, <laughs> very reluctant to look deeply at our downstairs, and so it's for that reason that we thank you for the example of Peter, but Lord, it's, it's not really about Peter, and so we pray that you would help us to look gaze, stare at what Jesus has done for us, and to consider ourselves in light of the promises that he made, promises that he fulfilled on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to view all those things in our life in light of that, that we would rejoice in what you've done for us, that we would rejoice in the condemnation taken on our behalf, and that we would be changed by it that we would go forth into the world seeking to, to, to obey, seeking to be holy, seeking to love others as you call us to love them, but seeking to do that out of the power that you provide because of what you have done for us. God, strengthen us for that this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.